0: Welcome, everybody, to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez, director of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Five years after the US financial crisis broke out in the beginning of the global recession, the responses of governments to the turmoil have varied, uh, with some economies back on a growth path and others, namely uh, European economies, mired in debt that threatens to break up the euro and to turn their economic problems into regional or wider international crisis. We are told, nevertheless, that austerity is being applied throughout uh, Europe. Paul Krugman refers to Europe's infatuation with austerity. That characterization is completely at odds with the views of uh, other important economists, including uh, our speakers today, making it clear that there's not a consensus on the appropriate fiscal and monetary uh, response, and that there may not even be agreement as to what the term austerity means. Thus, the debate in Europe uh, on austerity is muddled. It has led to much unclear thinking and uh, misguided policies. And it is inhibiting learning, uh, the lessons lessons that are emerging from a Europe that has seen more varied policies and results than is generally uh, appreciated. Has cutting spending really harmed economic growth? Or has stimulus been necessary and performed better? What does the European experience show uh, to be the relationship between fiscal and debt policies on the one hand and recovery? Is the European crisis essentially a macroeconomic uh, policy problem? Or are there more fundamental issues that need to be addressed both within countries and at the European Union level? level? Our speakers today uh, are among the most qualified experts who can address these questions. And I'm pleased to be able to welcome back to the Cato Institute, uh, Simeon Jankov, uh, who has uh, spoken here many uh, times before. Since uh, 2009, up until March of this year, he was the Deputy Prime Minister and the Minister of Finance of Bulgaria. Prior to that, he was at the World Bank for many years as the Chief Economist of the Finance and Private Sector Vice Presidency, He was uh, probably most uh, well-known over there as being the creator and the lead author of uh, the World Bank's flagship publication, (laughs) The Doing Business Report, which uh, led him to uh, advise many countries on regulatory and other issues. I think he worked in more than 100 countries during that time. He was also the principal author of the World Development Report 2002. And in these past several years, he has been very involved in trying to deal with the the crisis, both in Bulgaria and in negotiations with his colleagues in the European Union. Please help me welcome Simeon Jankov.
1: Thank you very much. I'm glad to be uh back uh, here, Uh, and also glad that with uh, Anders, we will, um, for the next uh, hour or so, discuss with you the topic not just of austerity. We uh, put this uh, topic a month ago when we first uh, discussed this uh, event, Uh, but also the broader topic of uh, why do some countries want austerity, and why do some countries say that actually austerity uh, Uh, is not a good thing for them. Ultimately, they want to answer this question. Either they want to save the euro, or they argue that the euro by this uh, stage is uh, clearly unsalvageable, so we might as well do other things. So I will uh, first uh, approach the uh, broader uh, topic of saving the euro, um, and uh, we'll uh, in brief uh, discuss what methods have been tried over the last three or four years, or at least discussed in the public arena, and then some of my own views on what can actually uh, work. And then uh, Anders has uh, a lot more specific uh, messages, both on uh, uh, austerity and then uh, the path towards stable Eurozone and a stable, uh, a stable, stable Europe. Uh, I should say that I'm um, the presentation today is, today is part of a book that I started writing while still part of ECOFIN and a finance minister. So uh, one of the benefits from not being a finance minister is that you can actually finish uh, writing. Otherwise, uh, it would have been a while. Um, So I first want uh, uh, to answer quickly two questions before I get into the substance. And the first question is to define the topic. So what is the euro? And secondly, uh, to trying to convince you why I am a reasonable person to talk about uh, uh, saving the uh, euro. So what is the definition of, uh, of the euro? There are many definitions. You know the technical definition. But I thought that this definition that's uh, in front of you uh, after, of course, some, uh, some thinking is probably the best that describes uh, not just what is the euro, but how we have been thinking of the euro in the last uh, uh, four years. So basically, um, one person, we'll guess in a, in a moment who that person was, said roughly that uh, euro is like a bumblebee. In other words, it's something that shouldn't fly, I'm paraphrasing, but actually flies and has been flying for some time. But now there are new winds, and it's actually not able to fly. So either we have to have better winds, or we need to make this uh, bumblebee into a real um, into a real uh, bee. At first, it sounds a bit like uh, part from winning the pool, but if you think about it, this is in fact the fundamental issue that we've been trying to uh, discuss over the last five years or, or so. Because if you go back to um, The 90s, the um, start of the euro, virtually every meaningful economist, both in the US and in continental Europe and in the UK, was saying that the euro would not work as an idea. But economically speaking, the euro is not a very good idea because Europe is not an optimal currency Uh, area, because in order to have such a a monetary union, you need to have a fiscal union uh, around it, uh, a much stronger political union around it, and so on. So from the very beginning, there was this understanding by economists that this is not a good idea. And unlike on other topics where American economists and European economists quickly disagree, there was actually a broad agreement on this topic among uh, economists. There was also a broad agreement among Uh, European politicians that despite the fact that it's a bad idea, they'll still go ahead with it because it's a political project. And I'll come back to to this uh, uh, topic in in a moment. But first, we'll guess who actually said that. So you can think that this kind of a thing can either be said by somebody like Silvio Berlusconi or it can be said by somebody like Sarah Palin Um, I put Mario Draghi there, or that actually nobody can say something like that. It turns out that it's actually said by Mario Draghi, and this is uh, one of his uh, insights in his uh, uh, commencement speech, if you like, on uh, taking the role of chairman of the ECB. So not too long ago, he uh, came up with this definition of the euro on the way to describing what's his role and the role of the ECB in uh, dealing with uh, with the crisis. So now we roughly know not just what the euro is, but what is the fundamental problem with it, in short. It is that from the beginning, experts said this cannot work in its then uh, format. It needs either something new, something additional institutions, some new setup, or basically forget the idea. It's not going to. Um, uh, to work. Politicians, nevertheless, uh, went, uh, went with it. So then the second question before getting into the uh, main part of the presentation is why I'm presenting this, uh, this to you uh, and why I'm writing about this topic. And the main answer is, apart from being one of these economists who actually don't think that the euro was such a good idea to be uh, established some time ago, I spent the last four, four years of my life going many, many times to Brussels or to Luxembourg or to wherever the various ECOFIN meetings of finance ministers were to discuss this topic. So I have some inside view on what was discussed and what worked and what didn't work. But also, I have some frustration. And this is the frustrations. I hope that you can read at least something of it. Is it. I joined uh, ECOFIN, I became finance minister, in the summer of 2009, when the crisis already had started. It was clear that there is a big problem, and it has to be uh, solved. And coming perhaps from the World Bank, which we also uh, uh, dealt with these issues, I expected that we'll basically be meeting day and night night, until we solve the issue. And to my amazement, when I joined uh, ECOFIN in July of 2009, still remember, after we introduced each other uh, and so on, they said the next meeting of ECOFIN would be in two and a half months. And I thought, that cannot be. I must have misheard something. Why? Well, because there is a long summer vacation. And of course, we cannot be bothered uh, in Europe to not take our summer vacation. So we met really about two and a half uh, months later. The week that the Karamanlis government in uh, Athens uh, gave, uh, gave their resignation, and then the Greek uh, a crisis started. But it turns out there are probably other examples in world history where people have dealt with this. But I got a quote. Uh, actually, Larry Summers uh, first pointed this uh, quote, which is on the Pentagon Papers, the US dealing with the Vietnam War, that basically says that at every juncture, policymakers made the minimum commitments necessary to avoid imminent disaster. In other words, don't do anything and hope for the best. And this is what I felt, for at least for the first two or three years, we in ECOFIN and, in general, most European politicians were doing, basically trying to not make any significant uh, movements, uh, hoping that something good would happen. But of course, nothing good uh, happened. Things were going from bad to worse, and from worse to even uh, worse. And at some point, something had to be uh, Done, but uh, we lost, in my view, at least two or three years in Europe trying to um, to basically wait it out. Uh, today, incidentally, the IMF uh, has announced that uh, they're publishing a report uh, later today or tomorrow, admitting to their mistakes in uh, Greece in not uh, having the right decisions, and hopefully also admitting. I hope that. Um, They were too slow in uh, making them. But anyhow, after these four years, I wondered for a long time, so why can't we come up with some reasonable um, uh, decision by enough smart people who have thought about the euro or about other such monetary arrangements and fiscal arrangements? So let's, uh, let's see what we come up with. And they are, in fact, three or four ideas that, over the last, uh, since, 90, uh, since 2009 or so, have been around in the public arena. So I'll quickly go through them and tell you why they didn't work. And then I'll come to uh, what I think is reasonable to work. Uh, before that, I'll tell you what the problem that people were trying to, and still are trying to resolve in Europe is. very high unemployment, several years of uh, consecutive um, recession in countries like Greece. Greece has entered its sixth consecutive year of of recession. Youth unemployment in some countries is very high, 62.5% the latest data for uh, Spain. Imagine if 2 thirds of your young people are unemployed. What sort of policies, uh, social or other policies, you can uh, create? And a number of countries have essentially gone bankrupt. So they've had to be... um, uh, helped by a combination of uh, the European Union, the IMF, and the uh, ECB. Uh, Sorry, I want to show you this graph, which is the so-called Maastricht criteria, because a lot of the discussion on fiscal union, I'll end with this, goes around the topic of we need new rules, the so-called fiscal compact that was established finally in 2011. And in the future, we are going to enforce this very strictly. But the fiscal compact is nothing more than the Maastricht criteria that actually was set up already in 1999 for entry into the uh, euro and that were not followed by uh, anybody for a very long uh, period of time. In fact, there are some countries like France that have never met the Maastricht criteria, never, not in a single year since the creation of uh, the euro. This is just the eurozone, and basically in this, uh, in this uh, box are the only three countries that meet uh, currently the Maastricht criteria, which are Estonia, Luxembourg, and Finland. Of the 17 uh, eurozone countries, the only three that actually meet the Maastricht criteria. The further out you go, the less you meet them, and then you see Greece that is decades from, uh, from uh, uh, meeting them. Um Latvia, hopefully, will be joining um, the Eurozone uh, next uh, January. Anders will speak about uh, that. And it becomes the fourth country that will be uh, meeting this uh, this criteria. Everybody is quite uh, far off. And then I already spoke about unemployment, but it's for a moment actually useful to look at it. It is not just... Uh, Greece and Spain that have rapidly gone to average unemployment of about 26-7%, and youth unemployment above 60%. But there are some other countries like Portugal, like Cyprus, that only now starting to climb to unemployment at uh, 20-20 plus percent, which is not just an economic issue, it's also a big uh, social issue. But what is the real problem? And this is in some sense where we will be uh, leading our uh, discussion. It's not just what currently is the problem. It's that this problem has been accumulating over time, partly because of how the euro was created itself, partly because in the eurozone itself, many countries that shouldn't have been allowed were uh, allowed. So I've selected uh, three things to make the point. First, uh, the so-called southern-rim countries, the, uh, the countries in the southern part of Europe, all are running very large current account uh, deficit. So I've listed here that uh, France, for last year, had a current account deficit of 82 million uh, euro, billion, excuse me, Spain, 32 billion, Portugal, 11 billion, and so on. So basically, the whole Southern Rim is uh, not producing and exporting enough. To, uh, to be competitive in the global economy put it that way. On the other side there is Germany that alone has a budget surplus current account budget uh, uh, current account surplus of 170 billion uh, euros. So you basically have a very divided eurozone where you have uh, uh, Germany, the Netherlands Finland, Sweden outside of the eurozone, that have large surpluses. They produce a lot, and they export a lot. They're successful globally. And you have the southern European countries that basically export very little, and they're not uh, globally um, uh, competitive. Part of the reason is that it's nearly impossible to, run, to start to run a business in this country. So I've pointed here uh, one number, which is that if you tomorrow want to establish a very small shop, one-person shop in uh, Athens it would cost you 9,000 euro just to be able to open it. And this excludes industry-specific uh, requirements. So just uh, just to open some sort of a grocery store, let's say, you'd have to put up in various fees 9,000 uh, uh, euro. The comparable amount in Berlin, and Germany is by no um, stretch of imagination a country without regulation, is about 500 euro. So to give you... An, an idea of how different, how mo- much more difficult it is to do, um, to do business in uh, Athens, in Cyprus, in Paris, and so on. And the last point, which I think is the most striking, and very few people realize it, uh, Anders will speak about this, is the level or the lack of education in some of the southern European countries. One number that I would like you to um, uh, remember, which is that in Portugal, only 38% of the working age population has high school diploma, has finished high schools, 38%. Slightly more than a third of the labor force has high school, not university, high school. The comparable number for Germany is 88%. In the US, it's something similar, I think, about uh, about, uh, that. So with that, I'll very quickly go through the solutions that were proposed and didn't work or were never implemented for one reason or another. First idea sounds great, euro holidays. This is um, an idea mostly um, supported by Martin Feldstein from uh, the NBR. The idea is simple, which is to say, look, some of these countries basically entered the eurozone, and they shouldn't really have been in. So why don't we temporarily send them on a holiday? So if you like, they are suspended for some time. They're suspended from the currency pack to the euro. Their currency, roughly speaking, uh, uh, devalues to whatever its uh, real value should be. That can take a year. That can take uh, two years. He gives it up to three years. They also do some significant structural reforms that can be negotiated with uh, the European Central Bank and with European Commission in this period. The period is pre-specified. Uh, And then the ECB and European Commission guarantees that if these structural reforms are done, then they will be readmitted. So there is no issue that you're once out, and then nobody wants you um, back. So this is roughly the idea to uh, detach from the euro, get a new balance, if you like, in the exchange rate, reattach, but in the meantime, you've done uh, a number of um, reforms. Sounds very uh, logical, but it has a number of... um, problems, one uh, purely uh, technical problem that then all contracts have to be rewritten from euro to whatever the new currency would be, the new drachma or the new lira or or whatnot. You would have to rewild uh, uh, meters. And this would take time. It would take at least a year. How do we know that? Because countries that are entering, like Estonia, like Latvia, have about a year, six, nine months to a year to prepare. Uh, but for them, it's easy because they're entering something that already exists. The currency already exists. The contracts can be future contracts towards uh, the euro. And anyhow, many of the contracts are already in uh, in euro. So it's easier to enter rather than exit. This is a more difficult uh, uh, thing. Uh, Banks will have major problems with the balance sheets, the banks that hold uh, Greek, or Italian, or Spanish, and so on uh, debt. And it would be a huge political problem as well, which I'll discuss at the end, which is that in the current uh, uh, eurozone contracts, there is actually no exit clause. If a country decides today to exit the euro, actually there is no legal way to uh, do it. It was purposefully done this way so that the currency looks stable. But uh, it didn't help much. Second solution is uh, a variation uh, called the northern euro. It's an even simpler idea, basically saying, look, we have two Europe's I showed you in the trade data. Southern Europe that's not competitive. Northern Europe that is, if you like, super competitive. So we can do it two ways. Either the southern countries can exit, but that has issues that I already mentioned. Or northern countries can exit. And the easier thing about northern countries exiting is that, if you like, it's more believable. So if they're exiting, their currencies are not going to depreciate. So you're not going to have some of the problems on the balance sheets of banks, at least not such uh, large problems. So several people have suggested this. But under the main uh, storyline, you have first a small country or several small northern countries let's say, Austria or Finland or the Netherlands uh, exiting. After a while, Germany uh, follows, plus a few other uh, austerity hawks, Latvia, Estonia, and so on. And you gradually create northern euro. And essentially, what is now the euro becomes the southern uh, euro. The southern euro then can have its own monetary policy with its own uh, central bank. They can run a more expansionary policy, and in that way, if you like, avoid austerity, which is what uh, the southern European countries want to do um, anyhow. There are many issues with this. First, uh, the German exporters wouldn't agree with that, because currently they're enjoying some um, competitive advantages from the Uh, from the euro, otherwise uh, the currency of the northern euro would appreciate, and it would be more difficult to export for them. But most importantly, it's very unlikely that if you just leave the southern European countries, they actually can put together southern European central banks, so they're going to start arguing, and you would end up with a strong northern euro, and then their own currencies, which were before they joined uh, the euro. So the whole then idea of united Europe Is going to completely uh, uh, disappear. Third idea: Euro bonds. This is actually still an active idea. Um, With Anders, we have some uh, we've discussed this uh, a lot. Um, The idea of Eurobonds is very simple, which is to say: look, we have an issue that some countries basically cannot appear on their own in the market. So if they appear, it's very expensive for them. So why don't we, instead of different countries going to the markets on their own, Slovenia, Spain, Germany, and so on, we put it together. So at the eurozone level, we appear as one country, just like the US can appear as one uh, uh, one country, even though it's uh, many states. And then we have one joint eurozone uh, Eurozone, uh, bond. Uh, That would reduce the cost. Many people argue of the bonds, and we have some estimates of how much it would, uh, it would reduce the bonds. This estimate suggests that Italy, for example, a country that's currently experiencing problems, would save up to 4% of its GDP annually if it can benefit from this, uh, from this um, euro bond. And currently, this is a live topic. In fact, it has been uh, throughout uh, the crisis. I'm almost done. What are the problems? There are a number of technical problems. I'm not going to go through them. So just look at the last thing. The main problem is that Merkel doesn't agree. And not only she doesn't agree, but she has this great quote at a party congress of the junior party in her government, where they ask her, "What do you think about the eurobond?" And she says, uh, "No to the eurobond as long as I live." And then the party claps and says, uh, "We wish you a long life." Uh, So basically the Germans are not at all even considering that uh, idea. It's not only the Germans, but the Dutch and... um Finns and so on, because they make the argument, the moment we have this pooling mechanism, it's like pooling risk. So there are some very risky countries and some countries like the Northern European that are not risky. So we are saving the Southern European countries uh, by reducing their interest rates. What are they going to do? They're going to borrow and borrow and borrow and borrow. So we're just going to deepen the the crisis. And last point, uh, which is an overall devaluation or, an internal devaluation. This is a point that a number of uh, American uh, economists, Paul Krugman, uh, who Ian mentioned, have been making, that the ultimate issue, this is the bumblebee discussion (coughs) that we are facing, is that the southern European countries were actually not competitive to begin with in joining the euro. But they joined it, and now they are stuck. They are not competitive enough to produce. So even if we somehow manage to get rid of their uh, debt, which is, uh, which is difficult to imagine uh, how, in another few years, they're going to have yet another crisis, simply because they are not competitive in the confines of, um, of the euro. So what do you do? Well, you can either devalue the whole euro which was Krugman's original idea, which actually doesn't help anything, even he realized at some point. Why? Well, because that would make Germany even more competitive internationally. So Germany suddenly will even surpass uh, uh, China in terms of uh, current account uh, surpluses, which it actually did in 2011. Uh, uh, once, but it's not going to help the intra-eurozone problems because Portugal is going to be as uncompetitive relative to Germany as it is now. So there is another idea, which is called the internal uh, devaluation, which is basically within the confines of the euro, the southern Europeans uh, should somehow devalue. How does this happen? A long story, but the short version of it is, if Germany agrees to run a larger inflation, than they're currently running, and larger than southern Europe. Here I haven't found a nice quote from uh, Merkel, but it would be something like this. You know, this is never going to happen as long as I live, and my uh, daughter lives, and her son lives, and uh, so on. So basically, that idea of the devaluation either external or internal, is also not uh, not going anywhere. So I went through all the things that were thought over the last four years, and then that nothing actually works. So you're starting to wonder, well, what did you actually do for four years? Well, there are a number of other discussions, and I'll finish with that in my last two uh, slides. Well, actually, first, it took a long time to even work on the topic. I mentioned that the first two or three years, people were just trying to avoid the main topic for discussion. By 2011, 2012, you couldn't avoid it, because it was clear that Europe was getting deeper and deeper into uh, trouble. So we started thinking of of, uh, how to resolve it. But even then, very few people, politicians in not just finance ministers, realize which is the bigger problem. It's not just that some countries now have very large deficits and debt. The bigger problem is that you have very low levels of education in some of these countries, that they're not competitive to produce and to export, and that regulation for business is just too burdensome. So you wouldn't even think of starting a business in some of the in Greece or in some of the sectors of these countries. You need to address these issues, but. This is a long-term agenda. How can you put together some uh, short-term agenda? So last two slides. First, uh, the short-term agenda. I already mentioned uh, regulatory things that you can do. And actually, some of these countries are starting to do. Ian mentioned mentioned the doing business team of the World Bank. It actually is working now in Greece with the Greek government to reduce um, barriers to entry of firms, uh, reduce. tax regulations, reduce uh, regulations uh, in the labor market, and uh, so on. Spain is doing the same. Portugal is doing the same. But the eurozone has two issues, which uh, which are on this slide, which is that I mentioned one. It actually has no exit. Legally, if you want to exit, you cannot. And this is supposed to be for stability. But anybody who's been in business knows that Ultimately, an orderly exit through bankruptcy, insolvency, through some rules, is much better than chaotic exit, which happens if you don't have any rules. An example of that is Cyprus, more recently. So you need to have some rules on exit of the eurozone. From the European Union, you have actually a rule. Eurozone, no rule. You cannot uh, uh, do it. In ECOFIN, we, of course, very informally in the dark, have discussed this idea and gradually come to the realization, uh, the countries that need to come to the realization, that yes, it's actually a good idea to have exit. We just need to wait for this crisis to subside (laughs) so it's clear that that solution is for the future. It's not now. Because if you announce it right now, then markets start thinking somebody is exiting. Who is it? And then they start attacking them. But the idea of an exit that is written in the rules is something that is gradually starting to be uh, agreed. And then the other idea, which is a focus that I've been working on coming from Central and Eastern Europe, that you also have to have much clearer rules on entry. Why? Because ultimately, if you push anybody, the Germans, the Dutch, the Finns, and so on, why did you allow the Greeks to enter or the Italians to enter? And they say, well, they didn't qualify, but it was a political decision. Well, You are the politicians. You decided. So how come? You cannot just say it's a political decision. And if it is a political decision, make it up front. So make it from the very beginning, and this is the suggestion that uh, that we have, so that when you're entering the European Union, not the Eurozone, but the European Union, you have a number of things. You need to have free press. You need to have uh, uh, not torture your animals, and so on. Right from the beginning for European Union entry, you also pose that you should meet not the Eurozone criteria, maybe, but the ERM-2 criteria, the initial criteria that I I showed you, towards going towards uh, uh, Eurozone entry. Why? Because in that way, you know that you're not going to accept somebody in the European Union, and then it becomes a political issue because you cannot Politically sort of kick them out. They're already your problem. That idea, too, when I first started mentioning it about three years ago in ECOFIN, was just forget it is not going to happen. By now, it actually has uh, a number of... um, proponents in among politicians among finance ministers for the same reason if you are trying to stabilize a system equilibrate a system you worry about entry and exit first and in this case neither entry is well thought of neither exit is uh, well thought of. For the long-term ideas, I'll leave mostly to um, Anders, but uh, I already mentioned a few of which probably the most underrated and the one that is least discussed in the policy debate in Europe is education. We generally think of all of Europeans as being fairly well uh, educated. And it turns out that in some countries it's not true. And there is also another problem that the type of education that uh, many Europeans uh, Get does not prepare them for um, production, for exporting, basically for the global uh, market. Very few countries like Germany, like Denmark, to some extent like the Netherlands, have vocational training where you start preparing from early on from high school on the type of things that make you productive. The rest of it is still you study ancient Greek, you study Latin. They may help you in this type of discourses that we are having today. But ultimately, they don't help you in the marketplace. I took a bit more time. Sorry. And looking forward to the discussion.
0: Thank you, Simeon. Our next speaker is Anders Osland, who is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute. Before that, uh, he has been with uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also an adjunct professor professor at Georgetown uh, University. He's an expert on Russia, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe, and uh, also on transition economies and the transition uh, to the market. He is the author or the co-author of 13 books, including How Latvia Came Through the Financial Crisis and How Capitalism, there it is, and How Capitalism Was Built, the Transformation of Central and Eastern Europe, Russia, and Central Asia. He's also been an advisor to the governments of Russia, Ukraine, and, and Kyrgyzstan. Please help me welcome Anders.
2: Thank you very much, Ian, and it's a pleasure to be here again at uh, Cato and in particular to follow uh, Simeon. And I uh, should say that uh, uh, Simeon and I have very similar views, but I'm going to talk about something uh, quite different or a different part of uh, uh, the euro uh, crisis. But let me start with this. Today, the European Union has approved Latvia for becoming the 18th member of the Eurozone. So Latvia uh, has gone ahead, and you can see this in two ways. One is that Latvia has qualified, uh, fulfilled all the criteria that uh, Simon talked about, and it has done so with a wide margin. And the other is also the Latvian belief in the uh, euro that this is going ahead. And I'm uh, going to provide you with two sharp contrasts. I'm going to concentrate on two countries, and uh, these countries are quite easy to select—the two countries that have lost one quarter of their output during uh, the crisis—and they are Latvia and Greece. And what uh, the other uh, two factors that make these countries particularly interesting is that they have pursued absolutely the opposite policies, and they have got absolutely opposite results so this is the best contrast we can uh, uh, imagine and uh, here is my book again uh, together with uh, Prime Minister Valdis Dombrovskis. and I engaged uh, uh, with Latvia in December 2008 I'm uh, one of these people who tend to go in and look at the deep crisis and see is there anything one can do about it Are the politicians interested? Uh, During the crisis, I engaged in two countries, in Ukraine, where things did not quite work out so well, and in Latvia, where they worked out uh, perfectly. So uh, uh, we talk about austerity, but uh, I don't mind what it is in the headline here, but we should really talk about fiscal responsibility. Uh, We should define our terms. And the... Uh, The fundamental truth is that money is not free. This is uh, the idea that Paul Krugman has not understood. Perhaps for the United States, as as an exorbitant privilege, uh, it is almost free with a very low um, uh, yields. It's not free in Europe. And we are talking about uh, Europe here. So, if you have a big problem, you have to solve it. All problems can be solved. Uh, So the real question is uh, if you should pursue fiscal responsibility now or later. And another question, who is prepared uh, to pay? And what I'm going to focus on here is should you front load or back load? And uh, my argument, as you might have already guessed, is that you should uh, front load. So why? First, you return to uh, growth earlier. Politically, it's much easier. You get a better fiscal adjustment. You get more and better structural reform. You achieve financial sustainability. And you restore confidence much earlier. And I'm going to go through these uh, uh, six points now somewhat in um, uh, detail. Here, you can see the growth trajectory of these two uh, uh, countries. Does it work? No. Oops, sorry. Sorry, now I did something wrong. Here we are. So, the blue line is Latvia in and following graphs, and the red uh, dotted line is Greece. And you can see that they have... Uh, Uh, While the total decline, output decline is the same, the curves look totally different. And this depends on two things, ECB policy to begin with, and government response. When the crisis hit in the fall of 2008, you see that Greece did not suffer much. Why? Because the ECB flooded it with liquidity which was, of course, a massive mistake. Greece should have faced its crisis in the fall of 2008 if ECB had been reasonable, and it was not. And why did Latvia suffer so hard? This was not because of any austerity. It was because the ECB gave no liquidity whatsoever, although Latvia was a member of the European Union. So therefore, Latvia saw in one year a decline of GDP of 18 percent. And this is the reason why Latvia is now joining the euro, because the Latvian politicians say never again. Next time we face a liquidity freeze, we want to have ECB liquidity. This should not happen again. Of course, uh, this was a sudden stop. Latvia was heavily uh, overheated but it was in a reasonably good uh, fiscal shape before. And then the next part you see, it is the government policy. And as I will detail, I think that the Latvian policy has been very good. And uh, therefore Latvia has now uh, 5.5% growth the last two years, while um, Greece is... uh, Tugging along with an annual decline in the order of 6%, which uh, does not make much sense. So next, uh, it's politically easier to do this. And we have this uh, famous phrase from uh, Rahm Emanuel, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Upon He went on to waste it. (laughs) So uh, the simple logic is the longer you wait, the more difficult uh, it is. Latvia had one riot in January 2009, essentially because people were upset that the government didn't do anything when the country was in obvious crisis. And in March, my good friend Valdis Dombrovskis came in as uh, prime minister. And he said, in this situation, we have only two alternatives, uh, one bad, and one worse one, I prefer the bad alternative. And in, uh, with this, he went out and sold the program. Uh, no uh, uh, promises of any success, but uh, that the, uh, he, this was the only way he could see to solve the, uh, the problems. And after this, he has been re-elected twice. I could say, add here also that... Uh, There are five North European governments that have been re-elected in the last two or three years, and they've all pursued quite uh, uh, serious economic policies. The Estonian government, the Swedish government, the Finnish government, and the Polish government, apart from the Latvian government. So this idea that Jean-Claude Duncker, the... Uh, the uh, prime minister of Luxembourg has uh, spread that we all know what we have to do, but we don't know how to win elections is wrong. It's uh, these prime ministers who have done the right thing that have won the elections. Well, look upon the crisis countries. Uh, the, uh, The voters have happily kicked them out wherever they have uh, 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 mismanaged uh, the crisis. And then we turn to Greece. Years of riots, strikes, and demonstrations, radicalization of the electorate, and the question is, is democracy uh, in danger? Uh, Simeon pointed out that when he was... uh, uh, Minister of Finance, he saw six different ministers of finance on, uh, from Greece uh, during that uh, period in uh, uh, ECOFIN. So the political point, as is usually made, is totally wrong. And uh, the point is, you should thrive on the crisis and do what is necessary. Later on, you can't do it. And Another uh, third aspect here is that you get a better fiscal adjustment. Uh, You need to get ahead of the curve. When uh, Latvia did a fiscal adjustment of 90 uh, uh, percent of GDP, and two-thirds of this has been expenditure cuts and one-third tax hikes, Uh, Greece, on the contrary, has uh, done little to cut public expenditure and uh, public expenditures actually increased as a share of gdp because the gdp falls faster than expenditures are cut and this is a sort of squirrel's wheel you get into and therefore greece has frankly little prospect for growth here is what it looks like to so see here you can see that uh, uh, greece has public expenditure of 54% of GDP, a bit more than Sweden has, and Sweden can afford it. And uh, Latvia has gone down to 36% of uh, GDP in public expenditure where they were before the crisis and where they should be. And you can guess then why Latvia grows so much more uh, than uh, uh, Greece does. And And, uh, then turning to the budget deficit also. Latvia has brought down the budget deficit to 1.3% of GDP. It used to have almost a balanced budget and it's back there. While Greece has a budget deficit chronically at 10% of GDP. This is a totally irresponsible policy. A country like Greece should have a public expenditure in the order of 40%, not 54% of the GDP, and uh, it, then it would have a, bu- a budget surplus. A fourth reason for front-loading uh, fiscal adjustment is that you get more structural reform. This is not automatic, but it's much easier if you want to do uh, structural reform. Because if you cut public expenditure uh, by a large number, you can hardly cut it evenly. You have to concentrate it to some things, and that drives uh, uh, reforms. And another reason is that vested interests are not mobilized early on. Uh, Coming back to the political economy uh, reason, and then you get more deregulation. Deregulation is mostly what you can do at a low cost. And here we are seeing, uh, in particular, the, the uh, Greek and um, uh, Italian labor markets remain s- severely uh, re- regulated. And uh, then you get more public sector reform. And here I'll give you a few numbers from Latvia. Latv- uh, Latv- the Latvian government sacked instantly, 30% of the civil servants closed half of the state agencies, closed over three years, uh, a bit more than half of the hospitals, Uh, closed in the first year, 12% of the schools, and uh, they cut public uh, salaries in the first year by, on average, 26%. The ministers cut their own salaries by 35% and uh, they did it in an equitable way so that the wealthy would uh, take more uh, cuts. And what has then happened to labor costs? Here you don't have, uh, oops, sorry. Uh, here you see the, uh, what has happened to real unit labor cost In Latvia, it fell pretty, uh, uh, In the first year by 15%, and then, uh, uh, sorry, they've fallen in three years by 18%, and now by 20%. Uh, Part of this is productivity increases. And in Greece, because of this flooding of ECB money, labor costs increased in 2009. Such a madness. And then, I'm afraid that the Greek people have suffered quite a bit. And now we have seen that the unit labor uh, cost has uh, fallen by uh, 11% over uh, this period. So uh, now it bites, but this is not a good way of adjusting. As you see, the Latvian curve is so much more uh, <coughs> comforting. And of course, this is particular about what. Uh, Uh, Paul Krugman never talks. Apparently the U.S. can forget about it. Europe can't forget about it. So financial stability is vital. The public debt as it is today, uh, as I think Simeon mentioned, is 91% of GDP. While the uh, Maastricht limit is 60% of uh, GDP. And out of the 27 EU countries, during the crisis, nine countries have lost uh, for some time uh, market access and needed uh, assistance. And at what level does this happen? The point is that you can't know. The U.S. probably can have 200 uh, percent of GDP in public debt and still have perfect uh, market access, we see that Japan has it still as uh, 240% of uh, GDP in public debt gross. But uh, Latvia and Romania lost market access when the public debt was less than uh, 20% of GDP. And financial uh, assistance is limited if you don't have ECB that pours money on you, of course. And uh, if there's no financing, you have little choice. And the little choice is very much the Latvian situation. So you can say that the Latvian and the Greek differences are very much because of uh, the outside world and not uh, entirely what the uh, countries did themselves. And finally, uh, confidence was restored early. So in Latvia, bond yields peaked in June 2009 but in uh, uh, Greece in February 2012. And today, of course, we are much lower yields and uh, market interest rates uh, in Latvia were uh, about uh, 3.2 percent. Uh, the 10-year uh, yields, uh, perfectly fine. And then, of course, you get much more domestic and uh, uh, foreign investment, which is reflected in uh, Latvia last year having been the fast, most fast growing country uh, in Europe. So uh, let us uh, take uh, the greatest mistake. I see in Financial Times and Wall Street Journal today, that the IF is going to, uh, probably tomorrow to issue a report. Mia culpa, say what they did wrong in Greece. We'll see how much of this they will include. First of all, the uh, credits were far too large, which meant that uh, Greece was effectively forced into a default later on. And that's the first principle of an IMF program, that it should be financially sustainable, and they did not maintain that. Second, there were no structural reforms. Only recently, did Greece adopt a law so that it would become legal to lay off a civil servant. Previously, they were protected by the constitution. And as I've shown, there has been no reduction in public expenditures as a share of GDP, but on the contrary, an increase. And there has been too little fiscal uh, adjustment and uh, no confidence and no growth. This is not good for anybody. And uh, this, is, and I think that uh, both the IMF and, as uh, Simeon uh, pointed out, the EU should be uh, f- soundly blamed uh, for uh, uh, this international uh, program. And uh, Simeon already talked about it that uh, education is the key problem in Southern Europe, and let up. Let me show you here that this is uh, the the US, you have furthest to the right. So the decent countries have more than 80% of uh, uh, the labor force, uh, the grown-up labor force has graduated from high school. And then we have these countries, not only Portugal, but also Spain, Italy, uh, Spain and Italy in particular, have uh, uh, less than 60% of the labor force uh, with uh, high uh, education. So Portugal and uh, Italy are among the worst educated countries in Europe. Therefore, they had no boom before the crisis. Uh, They uh, simply don't have a basis for high productivity growth. And this is what we should discuss, while uh, macroeconomists tend to discuss that they should abandon the euro and devalue. Well, you don't get more education by, through devaluation. I can tell you that. And uh, another measure, it is how they perform in this OECD PISA test uh, MF math test. And again, we find that, um, that the South Europeans uh, perform poorly, while the East Europeans uh, have a lot of education. The quality has been uh, uh, suffering in this regard. But also, as you are probably not surprised, the US does not look very good when it comes to uh, quality of education. So let me just uh, conclude that Europe's uh, fiscally conservative north thrives. The obvious conclusion from this is, of course, you should be fiscally responsible. How can anybody, apart from Paul Krugman, be surprised by that conclusion? And uh, the peace evidence here is a growth of uh, 5.5% in the last two years. While we are seeing that the backloaded south suffers, and uh, uh, there's really no, uh, no excuse for the economic policies that have been pursued in, in Greece, uh, which are just causing uh, additional and unnecessary uh, suffering. And As you might have noticed, I'm not very happy about the IMF in this uh, context, but Fiverr advice seriously uh, flawed. They have overestimated fiscal space in uh, Spain, Cyprus, and Slovenia. uh, And uh, they have pushed these countries to undertake fiscal stimulus, and then, of course, They have got stuck with large uh, budget uh, deficit. And then, surprise, surprise, they need financial support programs. And now the IMF is arguing for delay in, um, in the resolution of the fiscal crisis in Southern Europe. I can't see any moral defense for that to keep people in trouble and not provide them with a good solution so that they can uh, get economic uh, growth. Uh, I think that this is something that has to be changed. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Anders. We have time for some questions and answers. If you have a question, raise your hand and uh, identify yourself and your affiliation and who you're asking the question to. We'll start out up here in front. Yes, I'm
3: uh, Bert Kurowski, uh, I used to be the, ex- ED, the executive director of the World Bank. Uh, what I have missed during all these years in the discussions are really the the, the, the impact and the, of the financial regulation in creating this crisis. Uh, Mario Draghi, he was chairman of Financial Stability Board, and he didn't find anything strange that a bank could leverage itself 62 to 1 when lending to Greece. Uh, but only 12 to 1 when lending to a little small Greek businessman. He didn't find that this anything strange at all. Uh, these type of regulations are still there. So there is a tremendous austerity going on in, in Europe that is not the austerity Europe needs, which is the risk-taking austerity. Everyone is being driven into safe havens, safe havens, and no one is taking risks in Europe. Uh, I remember from Sweden. Uh, in churches there, they sing songs that ask God, make us daring. And here we have financial regulations that are doing completely opposite. So I wonder, in this whole role of, of, of recapt- reorganizing Europe, where, where do we handle, how do we handle these bank regulators?
1: Mm-hmm. So, one part, of, um, one part of the answer is what I first mentioned, that uh, politicians, and including finance ministers um, in Europe, really thought that the crisis would just go away. So there was no serious focus on any actually solutions, macro, micro, banking, and so on, for at least two and a half, uh, three years at uh, the beginning. So only towards the end of 2011, for me, the defining moment was when, um, the Eurozone had worked very hard to come up with the second Greek uh, uh, package with Papadreou. They thought that they had uh, agreed. This is October 2011. Papadreou goes back, and the next day says, well, I want a referendum to see what the Greeks think. Well, what do you think the Greeks think? You know, they're going to suffer. So that was the defining moment when they thought, okay, we need something else. Otherwise, we're all uh, uh, in trouble. And that's why many of the solutions that are starting to be... Um, Uh, implemented, I wouldn't say found yet, like the banking, the single banking supervisor, which goes a little bit towards your uh, issue when it is finally established, which would be 2015 at the um, the year list, are only coming now. There was this uh, big uh, delay. Uh, Directly to your issue, why is it that uh, that, uh, people didn't get to it? For two reasons. Partly because of this significant delay in policy making that I mentioned. And partly, which is what Anders mentioned, that first, the whole focus of, uh, of the eurozone, partly because of the people who are there and the people who are advising them, was on the so-called macro issues. Can we devalue somehow? Well, no, you actually cannot devalue. That's the point of the euro, that uh, you cannot devalue. But a long time was spent in thinking about this without thinking of the so-called micro and regulatory issues, because what you're uh, mentioning is essentially a regulatory issue, but also in the minds of politicians, a micro issue. How how do you make uh, banks behave uh, and bank regulators behave more responsibly? Now there are some steps towards that. Uh, I mentioned the single bank uh, regulator, which was decided first at the end of 2012, now, because of elections in Germany, they're backtracking a bit from the solutions, but I think it would come back again at the end of uh, uh, this year. But we have lost, as you said, three or four years uh, sitting around because of the mismatch of people. You're right that some of the people who are deciding think in very different terms than what they should really be thinking, regulatory, micro, and this overall political uh, uh, delay. Yeah, no,
4: I expect- Yes. In the United states, um, Could
5: you wait for Mike?
4: Yeah, I'm uh, Barry Stern from the Haberman Educational Foundation. Uh, in the U.S., uh, our states uh, are usually prohibited by constitutionally from uh, running up deficits, and it's probably saved our bacon because the federal government can run them up and the states can't. I'm wondering, is this would this be something feasible in the European uh, uh, Union? And secondly, when you had, Professor Aslan, that, that, that 30% drop in, in uh, or layoff of state workers, uh, how did they feed their families? What did Latvia do to, to, to cushion that, if at all, for the 30% who lost their jobs?
2: Uh, first of all, I should say that it was very popular to sack, uh, sack civil servants. <laughs> uh, at the same time, uh, Latvia rose to the top among the Eastern EU members in this uh, World Bank uh, doing business index that uh, Simeon uh, constructed here. Uh, So uh, what Dombrovskis did, he ran a campaign against corruption and oligarchs. Latvia had three oligarchs, which each uh, each controlled one party. So together, they had about half the parliament for 20 years. And uh, uh, he campaigned against them. And now two of these parties are gone. And the, the oligarchs have uh, uh, lost out. Two of uh, the oligarchs are subject to legal proceedings, which are not easy, because these are uh, one of them is the, uh, the richest uh, country, uh, man in the country. And uh, they are serious. Uh, alleged crimes uh, uh, involved, but uh, people saw that this is a man who's taking on the big crooks. Uh, something quite easy that uh, had really corrupted top-level uh, Latvian politics, it was that um, Dombrovski's prohibited top uh, officials to sit on state corporate boards, which uh, was what originally uh, corrupted the ministers in the early 90s, they did not understand that a minister should not sit on a state corporate board and get much more money from that than from uh, from his or her uh, salary. So uh, he prohibited double dipping and uh, also introduced some property taxes which had not existed uh, before. Uh, pointed taxes uh, t- going after them, but not abandoning the flat uh, income tax. Uh, so the, uh, Latvia has maintained the flat income tax, uh, again of course uh, uh, with serious protests from the IMF, which is always in favor of progressive income taxes. Uh, I'm missing Uh, On the constitutional limits, well, uh, now uh, all countries are introducing various budget rules. uh, Simeon, you should uh, take that. Uh, Indeed, uh,
1: every state in the US that came in the late uh, 1800s, 1860s, 70s originally, uh, has a balanced budget. uh, as part of the constitution, uh, California was the last one, as you suggested, to, um, to implement this uh, more recently. Um, until um, very recently, the last two or three years, the only country that had that specifically in the constitution in, uh, in uh, Europe was Germany. Which uh, implemented it uh, about six, seven years uh, ago, rather passed it, and it's coming, um, it uh, became the law only now in 2013. But that was uh, a big deal in 2011 2012 negotiations, the so called golden rules that uh, Chancellor Merkel was trying to push uh, with some help from um, the Netherlands, Austria, uh, the Baltic countries. uh, myself and we managed to push this so that by 20 by January 2014 next year every country member of the um, eurozone and uh, countries like Bulgaria who are not yet in the eurozone but can uh, Um, if you like volunteer, have to have not exactly a balanced budget rule, but at least a rule that you cannot run a a deficit of above 3% of GDP in any one year. And you cannot run a structural deficit, uh, which is above 1% uh, uh, a year. So there are actually such rules, but they're coming uh, due next uh, year. In Bulgaria, I managed to push it to... um, 0.5% structural deficit, and 2% uh, uh, overall deficit in any one year is an upper limit. Some other countries have done uh, uh, the same. The issue that we'll be facing now is that it enters uh, next year, but I showed you the graph. Only three countries actually meeting (laughs) meeting the mastery criteria as of this year. Italy just managed this year barely uh, (laughs) 2.96%. um budget uh, budget deficit for last year but let's say there will be four or five countries by 2014 that meet that what's going to happen to the rest like France for example is now scheduled to be uh, at uh, uh, below three percent ba- not balanced budget below three percent deficit in 2018. And this is what they are saying that they'll do, which means it's probably going to be further into the future. So you have a balance, not exactly a balanced budget, but you have a constitutional amendment. And then you're not really meeting it five years in a row. So I think there's going to be a lot of legal finagling for the next few years to come up with it. But it's getting there.
2: Mm-hmm. Let me just add here on the social side, of course, you had there were social benefits for and unemployment benefits for those who were sick. Uh, something that is quite important is that after the German post-war constitution, most constitutions that have been adopted after that in Europe include uh, a lot of social guarantees. So, for example, Latvia and Romania <coughs> cut pensions, and this was reversed by the constitutional courts because you are not allowed to reduce any social benefit according to very many European constitutions. Portugal is another example. Yeah. Uh, or as I mentioned in Greece, but they were not allowed to sack, uh, lay off a civil servant. Now this is being changed. And instead, you are getting these uh, 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 debt limits coming into the cons- uh, cons- uh, Constitution. And if you hit the debt limit, for example, Poland is one case, they have 55% uh, of GDP and debt limit in the Constitution, then you get this wonderful uh, institution that is called sequester.
0: Question here.
4: Um, what what I thought was very Could interesting. Could you please identify yourself? Uh, uh, Antoine van Ackmalkart and Rothkopf. Um, one thing that both of you emphasized that is hardly ever discussed in these debates or in these discussions is the differences that result from basically the, the lack of education. And you used high school as a proxy, but... but it's good. So my question is, would, and Latvia has a very high number, and Greece and Spain have a very low number. Mm-hmm. So the question is, would they be able to succeed, and Simeon, Bulgaria, had a low number too, so you may be able to comment on that. Um, would, would Greece be able to do, even with, with you know tough fiscal policies, what Latvia does with that kind of education problem? And the second question I have is, how much of the unemployment that we see in Spain and, and, and Greece, et cetera, is due not so much to this recession that they have now, but just simply because <laughs> the education is bad. <laughs> or the, the, So the post question. I'll start maybe with the second.
6: So
1: w- what part is people who are, let's say, not well educated? And the answer is nearly half. So how do you know this structural unemployment? You go back in time, we now realize, wow, these are big numbers, 63% nearly of youth is unemployed. But if you go even before the crisis, you see that around 30 meaning 2008 or so, 30% are still unemployed. And these were especially in, I'm I'm talking about Spain, Uh, and these were boom years. Construction was booming in uh, in Spain. So even for less educated people, there was actually... uh, decent possibilities for work, but about uh, half of these people who are currently uh, unemployed, uh, structurally unemployed, that they didn't have the skills, if you like, even to be on a construction uh, construction site. So that means that, in some sense, uh, these longer-term reforms have to to start now, or should have already started a long time ago, and then they would start yielding success maybe five years from now, 10 years at uh, the earliest. That's why I also outlined some shorter-term um, uh, reforms, but it is a long, um, a long problem, um, and also a long, to re- long time to resolve in uh, Southern uh, Europe. Some of the East European countries, like Bulgaria, like Romania, where we come, you saw on the two uh, slides a curious pattern In terms of the quantity of education, we are up there with the the best. 85% of uh, of, uh, the working uh, age population are high school-educated, and they stay in school and uh, so on. But then uh, increasingly, and this over time deteriorates, increasingly uh, we score badly on math and science. If you go back 20 years, it wasn't the case, actually. Uh, East Europe uh, and Bulgaria scored quite high on this, but... Every year, it's going down uh, and down. So we also, we, I mean, this part of Eastern Europe, also have the same uh, issue to less uh, degree, but have it. And it goes to your first question. So can some of the reforms that Finland, Sweden, Latvia... can they happen in Greece? Can, can it happen in Bulgaria? I thought uh, a lot about it. We actually have very similar numbers to Latvia in terms of um, our macro numbers, actually somewhat better than Latvia, sure, uh, less uh, debt to GDP than uh, Latvia. Bulgaria has uh, lower deficit than, uh, uh, than, uh, they, uh, than they have, but yet we don't have the growth. And, and we've had this consistently, so it's not just for one year or so, but we don't have the growth numbers that Latvia has. So some, in my view, some significant share of that is government policy, but the other significant share is education. And it is significantly underrated. That's what I mentioned, that somehow we never thought of education. It's the first time, even in ECOFIN, I don't remember a single time discussing, uh, discussing education as an issue.
2: Yeah, let me follow up here on uh, I we just spent, it was last week in, uh, in Tallinn and Riga, and uh, uh, Riga, it was for a big Baltic Development Forum. Two top questions are higher education uh, and innovation and research and development. That this is what is missing. So Eastern Europe needs to leapfrog when it comes to quality of uh, Uh, of uh, education. And uh, to your question, Portugal and Italy had about 1% growth a year for the decade coming into uh, 2008. So they really showed that they didn't have uh, uh, the the capacity to grow even what were uh, boom years um, for for, uh, uh, Europe. Something that is discussed now much is apprenticeships, where, where of course, Uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, uh, uh, also Denmark, are doing very well. So uh, to get good vocational training uh, is becoming a serious uh, problem. And it turns out that uh, in Germany, manufacturing is still 22 percent of GDP, while in a lot of uh, Western countries, including this one, it's about 10 percent of GDP.
0: We'll take a question in the back, uh, and then we'll take a couple of questions in the front after that. (laughs)
5: <laughs> I'm Ramachandran now with uh, a, a WHU University in Germany um, while many of the points both of you have made are germane about the structural changes that are needed in Europe my understanding of the reason why the euro was developed was in order to pull some of the countries to become more disciplined particularly more disciplined, like Germany, whose tolerance for inflation I was amazed to discover is extremely low. Now, why did that not work? The idea was that somehow bureaucrats in Europe were going to monitor the situation very carefully, but then they failed to do so. And it wasn't a failure of detection. It was a failure of enforcement. Now, the alternative would have been a market mechanism, but. I don't know if Europe is ready to go back to a market mechanism to, to enforce fiscal discipline. Certainly the bureaucracies of the IMF are not about to do it. Mm-hmm. And the only question is, why did it fail? Why did this attempt for internal monitoring fail?
2: I'm happy to take it.
1: First, I'm far from thinking that with all of its uh, uh, problems, now is a good time to go back to a different system than the euro. Um, uh, So the euro is there. Whether it was a political decision or not, it is there, and we somehow need to um, upgrade it so that uh, it does better in the future. Why did it uh, fail? In my view, for two reasons, one you already mentioned that there was actually no credible Uh, institution to actually follow and uh, have the tools to say well actually you're not uh, meeting the criteria you're meeting the uh, criteria and this is why We find 21 or 20, but 10 years later, then Greece actually never met the criteria. We find only in 2007, this is eight years after the euro was established, that Italy never met the criteria until 2007. But there is no institution, European institution, that, if you like, is the certifying uh, uh, agency for that. I think at the beginning of the euro, however, there was um, another problem, and that was credibility. That Not only France didn't meet the criteria in 1999, 2000, 2001, Italy didn't meet the criteria, but Germany also didn't meet the criteria. Germany actually had a debt-to-GDP of about 64%. Uh, in 1999-2000, and there were big discussions whether somehow to change the criteria so that countries like uh, Italy that had very high debt to GDP, but it was uh, over time allegedly being reduced, would enter. But Germany wasn't in that category either. Actually, its debt to GDP was (coughs) increasing. So for Germany, at the very last uh, uh, meeting of uh, heads of governments, when the euro was being created, they developed a tax literally in the last minute, which basically says that, well, if your debt is going down substantially, even if you're far above, then that's okay. That's Italy. But if you've recently had reunification, which is what Germany had, then that's also okay. And then, uh, and then, in, the moment you start writing these things at the very beginning, so you have Italy, France, Germany, the largest three countries that actually did not meet the criteria. I think you have a credibility problem, and perhaps because of that, having an agency would have just said, "Well, actually, you guys are not meeting. <laughs> nobody's meeting the criteria." Uh, I think by now everybody has realized this. I know by my work in the last four years just how rapidly uh, the European Commission has started looking actually at data and uh, asking questions, well, where does this number come from and so on. So we will get to the point of an institution that does it. But somehow the beginning just had too many credibility issues.
2: Let me add there. It was in 2002, the then president of the European Commission, Romano Prodi, said that the stability and growth pact is stupid. And he was supposed to be the guarant of that. And after that, the rest uh, followed. In November 2003, Simeon said Italy, France, and Germany were all out of bounds, and they said that uh, we are allowed to do this. And then in 2005, they reformed the Stability and Growth Pact. And after that, everybody forget, forgot about it, apart from the countries that were not in the Eurozone and wanted to join. They, so the, uh, but during the years, from 95 to 2002, there was a steady decline, if I remember rightly, of uh, average public debt from 70 percent of GDP to 60 percent of GDP. So Prodi is the big crook who destroyed the Stability and Growth Pact, and then we have three big uh, members of the Stability and Growth Pact uh, of the Eurozone who themselves did it. So the Germans should really eat this up themselves. The German public debt, as we speak, is 83% of GDP. So uh, to call Germany German an austere country is somewhat of an exaggeration.
0: Okay, we're really short on time, and I'm going to take uh, two questions in a row, I'm in the order that they came. in, so, there. No, what, we're going to. W- this. I am the, the okay, I'm. <laughs> I'm taking questions in the order that they came up. This, Is first you, and then. Okay. Let's be respectful of everybody. K-Row, OK, we, 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 you can raise your hand in order next time, and I'll call you in order. Go ahead.
6: Um, Dalbo Rohak, Cato Institute. I have a twofold fold question. Um, a common interpretation of the crisis is that it's a eurozone-wide systemic problem. Yet the solutions that you've proposed today were Okay, um, well, yeah, the, the solutions you proposed were mostly local, country-specific things like uh, fiscal adjustment, structural reforms, educational reforms. Um, is there any place for policy coordination at the EU level? Are there any benefits from you know doing things jointly in addressing the crisis? If so, what those policy areas could be? Um, and on a related note, Minister Diankov dismissed the idea of eurobonds as a way of socializing losses, incentivizing bad behavior. I think he was right to do that. I wonder whether he would be prepared to apply the same sort of reasoning to the existing bailout structures or mechanisms that exist, namely the European stability mechanism, uh, which you know could be called just another way of, of socializing losses uh, if you provide liquidity to, to countries that got into, into trouble thank you
0: could you give him the microphone you'll be the last
1: yeah this is a related question also you have mentioned the the um the euro bones as a way of leveraging uh the goodwill or the borrowing capacity of the of the northern countries who, which would subsidize somehow the the weaker ones but if you encumber the the borrowing power uh you also encumber the capacity to repay via the claim on 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 resources which are taxes so, how would you propose that that political consent is given, uh, not just to one side of the equation, but also to the claim on the resources with which to repay? Mm. I'll go first on the quickly. Uh, first, no, I think that we've suggested maybe there wasn't enough time. A number of systemic. Uh, uh, Resolutions. One is what I mentioned, and I think this can be done short term, unlike education, which would take some years. Is that in the Eurozone, it's not clear how exactly you enter, and it's also certainly not clear how you exit. Just the rules on exit are not non existent, they're not there. This needs to change. And I mentioned the example of business. Yes, we in an ideal world, no business will go bankrupt, but we know that businesses go bankrupt, so it's better to have an orderly uh, description of how this would happen. Once that is there, it actually gives you a lot of stability. The recent example is Cyprus. Remember for a while we had a new head of the uh, Eurozone, the Dutch minister? There was a lot of confusion who was saying what and can actually uh, Cyprus really uh, go bankrupt and leave the Eurozone? Can it not? And so on. If you don't have a clear rule, this is what happened. So there should be a rule on how do you exit from... Um, uh, the eurozone. It will bring stability over time, I mean, because uh, it is going to be one sort of uh, uh, a legal clarity that currently doesn't exist. I'm also proposing that since ultimately you always get to the point entering the eurozone is a political issue, well, okay, make it political from the very beginning, so make it part of the... Uh, po- the parcel of European Union entry. So the next entry, which is mostly going to be from um, uh, from the former Yugoslav country, don't wait like Croatia is entering July 1st. Croatia has actually very significant banking and uh, uh, issues and uh, budgetary issues. So it enters July 1st. It immediately becomes an issue for the European Union. It's a member, but it has a, a fairly large uh, budget. Uh, Deficit and like Slovenia, it has a number of uh, problematic banks. So you need to somehow at entry into the European Union, since that is the political decision, also bind and say you have to meet the, for, the following criteria. That can happen now in a year. This can both of this can be there. The third part is what. Uh, <laughs> what was mentioned by our former um, executive director director at the World Bank, the banking union. That actually started being very important because the crisis actually came through the banking sector. There were other issues, but uh, the banking sector channel is actually the biggest one and continues to be uh, in many countries the biggest uh, one. It's relatively clear what, what one needs to put together as a single bank supervisor, common guarantee scheme, deposit guarantee scheme, and so on. It's a lot of work, but one can do it, and it would certainly um, help uh, everyone over time. And it would not take too long. This can be done in the next one or two years, unlike education, that in a decade we would see some of the uh, benefits. And then on uh, eurobonds, I'll let Anders answer the most of the <laughs> question. But, without some additional structure without a banking supervisor or a move towards banking union without some moves towards fiscal union and i don't mean that suddenly brussels will have a lot of money because it goes to the question uh, at the back as a finance minister i can tell you my ministry in bulgaria had better people than the people who were on the other side in brussels so i certainly don't want to leave a lot of my budget to go to Brussels, because it is not going to be spent, as well as uh, it can be spent in Latvia, in um, Bulgaria, and so on. But there are some rules, uh, fiscal rules, that nevertheless can be put that are common and for all the countries. And once you have that, then you can discuss uh, over time, but I think it would be a long time. It's not a short-term solution, something like eurobonds. Now what would happen is what I just told you. Basically, these countries in the South would immediately start uh, uh, borrowing a lot more than they can now, and they would not do the structural reforms. The example is what what happened in Greece. Remember, 2009, 2010. 2010, Dominique Strauss-Kahn is head of the IMF. He thinks that he's running for the presidency in France the following year. He didn't, but that's another story. So why <laughs> did the first Greek package... Why was it so luxurious, so to speak? Because he wanted to be the savior of Greece. To go to France and say, see, I saved Greece. Imagine what I can do for for you. If if there wasn't that soft budget constraint, if you like, Greece already would have done a number of uh, reforms.
2: Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. One reason why Latvia and Greece have acted so differently is that uh, Latvia had a roadmap what to do. It's called the Public Expenditure Review, that uh, the World Bank routinely does every second year, a 200-page uh, or so a big document. And uh, the point is that here, governments for many years had never looked at them, but they were produced by the World Bank in good order. And here comes a good government that wants to improve things. So they just looked what should be done. How many people, too many, do we have in the healthcare administration in comparison with uh, Estonia? And then they uh, used the World Bank uh, documents. A problem for Greece is that we have no roadmap. The World ba- uh, Bank uh, doesn't work in Greece, and uh, it's a scandal that the World Bank has not been mobilized because we are very good at this kind of, of work. Uh, uh, much of the work is simply to make the public sector function normally. And this is a common problem. It's not a country-specific uh, uh, problem. And uh, who could do it otherwise? Uh, uh, consulting companies can't do this. They're too uh, afraid of dealing with um, governments and politically sensitive questions. Uh, they're better when you come to a lower level. Uh, the EU enlargement process handled this uh, uh problems but uh, they weren't uh, engaged uh, either on eurobonds. Uh, yes uh, you're right uh, in effect the bonds of the uh, uh, efsf and the uh, Euro- european st- stability mechanism are eurobonds. but the question is if they should be uh, given a much um, uh, much bigger role and here i agree with simeon that i think that would uh, ease the budget constraint when we really would need a severe uh, budget constraint on these European countries.
0: Thanks very much. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Please uh, join me in thanking our two great speakers today. <clears throat>